I love this. We have to go back to <laughs> we have to go back to 1630s uh, when the plague was in in Europe. If Nicola Monti had died, uh, all the knowledge of violin making would have gone with him. We would never have had uh, Guarneri del Jesu, the most famous, besides Stradivari. We would never have had Stradivari. We wouldn't have Guarneri del Jesu. We wouldn't have Carlo Bogonzi. We wouldn't have any of the great violins that we have now, uh, because that knowledge would have passed away with Nicola Monti. In this episode, I'm talking to violin maker Andrew Ryan. During the interview, Andrew showed me one of his beautiful violins, and he's talking about the detail that goes into the design and making of the violin, up to the complexity of applying the varnish. He's also telling about the history of violin making and why the Stradivarius violin is such a well-known and sought-after instrument after all these years. Hello, Andrew. How good afternoon, I should say. Yeah, well, good morning to you there. Um, where exactly are you based? I'm in Providence, Rhode Island, uh -huh. uh, in the United States. That's uh, a little south of Boston, about an hour south of Boston. Oh, okay. Uh, a few hours from New York City. We're sort of in between Boston and New York City. Uh, it's an old American city, uh, industrial oh. Uh, famous um, for industrial production in the 19th century. A lot of uh, inventions, a lot of industrial inventions, weaving and machines. And it's a, it's the head of a, a long bay. Uh, so there was a lot of shipping, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of rivers, big rivers that feed down into the bay. So there's a lot of mill work and things like that. So an old, old American city. Yeah. So if you if you go to New York, for example, how long a drive is that then? It's about two and a half hours. Oh, New I York. see. Okay, yeah. yeah. It, it's it's always interesting for me if if um, people from America says uh, say it's well, it's not that far. It's just a you know a two hour drive. <laughs> Which will get um, you to another country in Europe. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Um, Maybe two um, other countries. <laughs> yeah. And in South Africa, we talk the same. We say it's just around uh, the corner and then it's two-hour drive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Nothing. Two hours is normal. The, the, in Rhode Island, Rhode Island is the smallest state in the Union. Um, and we're famous, or at least the natives of Rhode Island. I'm not a native to Rhode Island. I grew up over the border in Massachusetts. But they're famous never leaving the state they sort of make a virtue of that they've never left the smallest state in the, in oh, okay. the country <laughs> so well it's tiny. this is so interesting yeah but um you are now and you are i i'm so glad to see that you are there where you where you make the violence i am i i at the moment i uh i have a studio in my home i have a uh it's a house built in the late 1900s, 1890s, and so it has uh, three floors, and up on the top floor, some very nice uh, smaller rooms, but uh, they have a nice view. I have very nice light. Uh, I've been uh, had my studio in here for about 10 years now. Before that, I was a restorer, uh, head of a large workshop of uh, makers and restorers in Boston uh, in the shop of Bruning and Son. Violins, but uh, for ten years now, I've just been doing. You've new, been doing that, yeah, new instrument making. And and how did you start uh, making violins? What was the interest there? Um, so I, I started as a violinist, you know, a great great school violinist, yeah. um, and uh, the teacher that I had also went to the flea markets on the weekends. Mm -hmm. So flea markets are like, outdoor sales where people yeah. sell you know, antiques or odds and ends from their, their homes and things like that. So he used to go to these uh, uh, flea markets and look for old violins and boats. So from him, I got a sort of uh, taste that there is a life to the violin besides playing it. The violins are bought and sold, and they uh, they have some 
different life than, than just the thing that I played music on. So uh, I had an interest in how they were put together or uh, how they made sound. Um, so I went to get a, uh, when I graduated from high school, I went and got a degree in music. And when I was done with that, then I decided it was time to go and study violin making, which I, I did in, in, in Salt Lake City to sort of feed these two interests, the musical and the sort of craft or, or artistic. Violin making is a, um, a craft that encompasses a lot of skills. So there's um, the woodworking, obviously, and the varnishing, which is sort of allied to painting or things sort of artistic nature. It's more sculpture than cabinet work. It's more carving. Um, there's acoustics, understanding how the instrument is put together um, mechanically. There's architecture, designing the, the design element. Um, so a lot, and the obvious musical element, uh, just as a, an instrument to make music on. So there's a lot of things you can be interested in and apply to the violin. Yeah. And then, of course, you have to have good, a good um, ear for the sound. You do. Uh, that, I, I would say that can be trained. Um, it, it's more asking the questions about what, what you're listening to and trying to understand uh, actively what sound is or how, how instruments work rather than necessarily um, understanding pitch or things like that. You, you have to understand the nature of acoustics or nature of um, what, what, how do I explain it? Um, so understanding what the musician needs uh, to make music, that's I think more important than some abstract sense of what is a good sound or bad sound. It's understanding um, how sound functions, how, how do musicians project the sound that they are trying to make, and how do they physically make the sound? Uh, so two key important things, those are the key elements, and those can be taught how to, how to look at them, how to listen, how to actively identify different aspects. Just as, in, I suppose, in art, you are taught how to look at a picture, not just to enjoy it, but you have to not say, oh, I like that or I don't like that. Well, it's deeper than that. You have to understand the composition, understand the palette, the visual palette, uh, and you can teach people. But um, so you started, uh, did you start off the interest of renovating or, or restoring old instruments? I would say in the beginning, I was more interested in um, new instrument making. So I, I went to a school where they taught how to make instruments, but they also taught you the, the skills of um, woodworking as it relates to violin as really surviolence. Um, when I left, uh, while I was at the school, I worked for the man who ran the school in his repair shop uh, as, a, as a means to make a living, but also um, to gain experience and to see instruments, to see old instruments and try to understand why people considered them uh, uh, valuable, so valuable. And, what the attraction was yeah. so it, it's it's a nowadays when i when i began school being a full-time maker meaning just making new instruments was more difficult than it is now uh i think people were less accepting of new instruments um, than they are now um so you kind of had to go into a repair shop to make a living, um, but nowadays you can come right out of school and and just start making instruments. And I think people are willing to uh, buy new instruments. There's a market for the bigger market. But what do you think uh, over the years? I mean, there must have been many people who made violence. What what do you think was it that made Stradivarius? 
the one that um, made the violin that is really so <laughs> famous and and uh... sure. Sure. <laughs> um, so Stradivari was part of a, a tradition. So he didn't sort of land in Cremona from outer space. He, he, he was part of a continuing tradition of making that went back at least 200 years for violins. So the, uh, a man named Amati, Andre Amati, is accredited with inventing the violin. Um, though there were people working in parallel to him. Um, there was a fellow named Gaspar Dassalo, um, who also developed a, what we know as a violin at about the same time. Um, Cremona, I don't know whether you know where Cremona is. Cremona is in northern Italy in the Po Valley, Po River Valley. Um, so it was a, a, an area of, of a lot of culture. Uh, it's not far from Milan. Uh, it, it, it's an area of sort of crossroads of trade. So there are a lot of things going on there. Uh, a lot of patronage, a lot of wealth um, to, to support. Uh, sorry, I'm going to a meander in my in my history here sorry yeah yeah um, it is good yeah <laughs> interesting yeah so yeah. this fellow andrea Monti um invented the violin around we'll say around 1540 ish um yeah. he made instruments and he, he basically made it as we know it today the violin has really not mm -hmm. changed at all in since then we've mm -hmm. sort of made minor adjustments to things um, but essentially, the design that he came up with and the way it works is is the way it is. Uh, the yeah. Changes in the arching and a very what, 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 what if I hold an Andrea Monti up and a modern violin up, you say they were the same thing. They were they, really? the differences are uh, very minor. So Andrea Monti invented the the violin. Um, as a product of sort of neoclassicism, or the you know the, the uh, both uh, an, an interest in Greek architecture, Greek design, the, the idea of classical proportions and things like that, and um, the sort of rising uh, science, understanding the the, the way the, that. People were understanding the world in scientific terms. Um, so the instrument has a design that is based on classicism uh, and proportion, and it functions acoustically. Like, I'm pretty sure, I, I would say pretty confidently that they understood acoustics, maybe not exactly in the way that we do, but they understood how things mechanically went together. Um, so he, Andrea made this violin. He worked for kings. Uh, he was a, a well-patronized, uh, very wealthy. Um, what else can I say about him? Um, he was the, the patriarch of a dynasty of violin makers. So he had two sons who were violin makers. Um, they had a, the, there was another next generation. His grandson is one of the most famous violin makers, Niccolo Lamati. Um, probably unparalleled for the beauty of his workmanship, uh, even beyond Stradivari, his, the perfection of the workmanship and the beauty of the construction and varnish and all the details, probably was the sort of pinnacle of the violin as a, as a work of art as opposed to sound, uh, but just as a, as a physical object. Um, and so the Amati family all worked for the kings of Europe, the nobility, the uh, the clergy, um, they were often, the instruments were often commissioned and given as uh, presents of patronage to, you wanted to, you know, impress uh, a king, you would commission a violin and bring it to him and present him and that would sort of get you in the door. Um, so that that's three generations of the Amatis, and that brings us up to the period of basic Stradivari in the Stradivari was born around 1644. Um, that's the, the, the date that's attributed to it. Um, he doesn't start making instruments until about 
since we'll say 1670. Uh, he sort of, and we, we don't know who he apprenticed with. We don't know his history at all. We know very little about uh, about Stradivari until he starts making instruments. Um, he says he's a pupil of uh, Amati, of Nicola Amati, but there's no record of that. Uh, and we have very good records of uh, Nicola Amati's workshop. So, and he doesn't appear in any of the records. So in those days, I think the, the terms pupil is had, had a sort of loose connotation. It was sort of a follower. Of oh, Amati. I see. Okay, yeah. Trying to understand the principles of Amati. Mm -hmm. of Amati. And they were in the same town. Mm -hmm. um, so we certainly would have seen the work of Amati. It's very possible that Stradivari uh, had some other woodworking skill. Uh, as an inlayer, carver, we're, we're not sure. Um, and he just made jumps from this trade into violin making. Uh, he's very ambitious. We know that uh, he makes a, uh, he uh, he wants to assume the the mantle of Amati. He wants to assume Amati's clientele, and he goes right. He goes directly at that. He's a very ambitious character. So to claim that, and there's only one label that says he's a student of Amati. So it's very possible he put this label in, and Amati said, "No, you can't do that. You're not my pupil." Um, right after that, we don't see that again, but we we see plenty of instruments. Um, so uh, it, 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 to get back to the original question, he exists in a tradition of making, and and it's often talked about uh, violin making as uh, an Italian art. Uh, you know, the, the most famous violins are Italian. Really, technically speaking, we can talk about Cremonese violins. As, so that's a uh, Stradivari and his sons, the Abantes, um, the Ruggeri's, uh, uh, the Bergonzi's, Carlo Bergonzi being the most famous, and the other most famous family, the Guarneri family. So there's this group of families, they all live in Cremona. And they all live within, you know, minutes, literally minutes of each other. Yeah. And and even Stradivari and the Granaries lived across from each other as they're employed uh, across an alley from each other. So we really should speak about the, the greatness of Italian making as Cremonese making and Cremonese making as just this like little parish within Cremona where these instruments were made. Um, I think mm -hmm. it was a very well-guarded secret, the knowledge that they had, or the, the understanding, we'll say, that they had of how the instrument was designed and how it was made, uh, and how it was physically made. Uh, that it was known within that group, but not outside of that group. Uh, and so Stradivari existed in that tradition. Um, he made some modifications to the archings, uh, and this is even, he made the changes to these details after about 1700, when he was already almost 60 years old. So oh, uh, it's very late in his career or late in what we would consider most people's career um, that he actually started on what we know or what we, um, uh, what we would call the greatness of Stradivari is basically from when he's 60 to when he's 90 years old, the, the production in those period, in that period, is what we know as Stradivari. Um, so he's great because he's in a tradition of knowledge uh, that's based on um, design, principles of design. It's not just arbitrary, it's very carefully calculated, and acoustic knowledge, how to construct the instrument according to the laws of physics. Uh, Again, not something arbitrary. They, they knew how to put the instrument together. Um, and he lived a long life. So not a small feat at that time. He was uh, at the benefit of when most people in his time would you know, either be dead or uh, in some kind of retirement. He's actually beginning the most significant period of in his career and in the career of violin making, that sort of period from 1700 to 1740 is the most creative period in, in Cremonese violin making. We have Antonio Stradivari, we have uh, 
Josephilius Andrea Guarneri, who's uh, um, the Guarneri family. Uh, so I talk about Niccolo Amati as famous maker of just before Stradivari. He trained a lot of people because, sorry, I told you it was going to meander, and I'm not, not letting you ask very many questions here, but uh, <laughs> I uh, love we have to go back to, <laughs> we have to go back to 1630s uh, when the plague was in, in Europe. If yeah. Niccolo Amati had mm -hmm. died, uh, all the knowledge of violin making would have gone with him. We would never have had uh, Guarneri Dale Jesu, the most famous besides Stradivari. Mm -hmm. We would never have had Stradivari. We wouldn't have Guarneri Dale Jesu. We wouldn't have Carlo Bogonzi. We wouldn't have any of the great violins that we have now um, because that knowledge would have passed away with Niccolo Amati. But he made it through. Um, he didn't marry till late in his life. Um, so he had no heir till quite late. So he had a had a workshop in which he, he needed people to help. Um, so he hired or brought in uh, workmen. Normally, you keep the tradition of the knowledge that you know within your family. You pass it just down from father to son. Oh, I see. This time, mm -hmm. father to son in the trade. Uh, it would not have gone to other people outside of the family. But because of the play, Nico had to hire people. And because he had to hire people, he had to spread his knowledge outside the confines of his family because all these people that he trained eventually went to other places uh, and started, continued the tradition, the Cremonese tradition in other places. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. But uh, uh, Nicolo's uh, chief assistant, or the head of his workshop, was a fellow named Andre Guarneri. Uh, he is the patriarch of a family violin makers that stayed in Cremona. Uh, so it's Andre Guarneri. He had a son, Peter, uh, he had a son, Joseph. Um, those two makers, uh, uh, one of them had a son, another Peter, and uh, uh, Joseph had a son, Peter, and a son uh, named Giuseppe, who is called Del Gesù nowadays. But Giuseppe Guarneri is the most famous maker besides Stradivari. So that tradition, yeah. So uh, uh, where was I in the... In the uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> The, this this knowledge uh, manages to make it through the plague, goes through the Guarneri family, goes to Stradivari, goes sort of branches out in northern Europe, I mean northern Italy, uh, because of his training. But Stradivari uh, succeeds because he's ambitious and smart, uh, a, a well-known um, uh, dealer who's a dealer in Chicago, violin dealer in Chicago, said to me um, one time, he said, Stradivari, he imagined Stradivari as the kind of guy who could go into a workshop and learn violin making in an afternoon. That he was just, just, he would probably, in other word, work. He just went into Amati's shop and saw what they were doing and said, I can do that. And mm -hmm. understood the, how it was done and uh, in a very short time. Amazing. So that is sorry, long-winded answer to your question. Yeah. Before, so you would say, great. yeah. So uh, so it was just he just had that. Uh, is it, could you say that he had the way of um, marketing those days his violence that he that he is so famous that but that it's not necessarily that it's better than than the other makers. Yes. Uh, so certainly he was ambitious we know yeah. that because uh, very early on he, he is trying to take over Amati's clientele he's making instruments of a very high quality uh, he's trying to um, get into that group he, he understands the trade um, he is a gifted work woodworker right uh, gifted maker um, he understands the, the how to put the instrument together he has the knowledge mm -hmm. um, the secret knowledge of Cremonese making. Um, what else would you say that, that are necessary? Um, uh, and yeah, he, he has all the attributes you need, mm. but like you say, principally an ambition to succeed. Mm. 
and he was quite he was very very wealthy by the time he died extremely extremely wealthy really? uh, yeah. Yeah. and i i had a um uh interview the other day with scott woodard a conductor there and he did a concert um and he was talking about the the red uh violin is yeah yeah. Was that the wood? That's the wood, the color of the wood, or what? Why is it called the red uh, wine? Well, I haven't seen that movie in a long time, so I, I can't I, remember everything, but I remember the, the, the bit about putting the blood the into the varnish. Yeah. So um, uh, that is a uh, uh, cinematic uh, liberty, we'll say. Um, so uh, there were makers who used blood in the varnish, actually, some of the southern German makers um but we know blood oxidizes so a red violin would turn black uh over time um it's you, you couldn't do that um the, the materials that they use is a, a famous resin called dragon's blood um because it's a very red resin um but that is a resin that's actually quite fugitive um so it will fade over time uh the the Cremonese makers um, most likely used a, a dye called cochineal, uh, which is a little bug from South America uh, that you can extract the color. It's a kind of purpley color. Um, there are matter uh, root, which is a, another root that has uh, a red dye stuff in it. You can make red from that. Um, so they used very traditional materials uh, that were they probably didn't do any of this work themselves. They actually probably went to the local chemist. So the pharmacy on the corner, so to speak, would have carried all of these things um, ready-made for uh, artists to use. Oh, I see. Yeah. And, and the varnish, did, does that make a difference to the sound of the violin? Yes. Um, it's more so than the varnish itself. It's the process by which the varnish is applied. Um, so we actually know pretty pretty confidently what the varnishes were, what they're made of, um, what materials we can find in the wood and on the wood. We're pretty confident. But something like baking a cake you can analyze a cake and know what's in it, but not be sure how that cake was actually baked. So this is the sort of tricky part of uh, old violins. Or, or the secret isn't in the ingredients. The secret is in the preparation and the manipulation of the materials because they're quite simple materials. So the varnishes are based on um, pine resin, cooked pine resin, and some drying oil, either linseed oil or weldon. Um, there's some proteins to protect the wood. Um, there were probably some stains that they used, some chemical stains based on uh, basically on saltpeter. So uh, they're oxidizing the wood somehow. All very simple things. Uh, but how did they get on the violin? That's the that's the tricky part, uh, and that's the skilled part in a sense. That's the part that requires. Uh, uh, an experience and uh, um, the, the intuition of an experienced craftsperson to know, oh yeah, this wood needs this or this, you know, it's always the same ingredients, but how do you uh, manipulate? Just like, like you know, I'll use the comparison of a cook, that just a cook would get a piece of meat or some vegetables or some, whatever they're cooking with, and they would look at them and judge what needs to be how they need to be prepared properly um, for their quality for how they're should I roast this potato should I you know should I saute it should I you know boil it they understand based on that particular ingredient or that particular application of material that makes that makes sense yeah that's so, yes yeah. So the sound is dependent upon the varnish. It's okay. easy to, to spoil the violin by varnish that is not put on properly. 
Uh, um, yeah. You can have all the same materials that they had and mm -hmm. not know how to put them on move by mm -hmm. them uh, in the correct manner and spoil it. Yeah. And now um, you said that these violin makers the, uh, those days came from the same area in Italy. Um, would they have used the same wood from, from a specific area so that we say, okay, those violins are made from the wood that grow in that specific region of Italy. We don't know absolutely where the wood came from. Um, anecdotally, we do. Um, so uh, we know the, the best maple uh, comes from across the Adriatic. So in present day Czech, in the Czech Republic or Slovenia or uh, that, that sort of Carpathian mountain range area, um, that's where the best maple comes from. It is uh, strong, light, often very attractively, what we call flame, the undulation of the wood is um, attractive. Uh, we know that a, a lot of that wood came across to Venice, Venice being a a great trade port. Um, so there are records of wood coming from, from that area into Venice being bought and sold. Uh, and we know that it's instrument making wood. Um, so anecdotally, we don't know particularly for the maple because it's, uh, it's impossible to identify it in that terms. We know that there is no native maple in Italy like that. So the, the maple that's native to Italy is, a, is a, um, uh, uh, either a root, uh, it's a small tree that's very gnarly and hard and very tough tree, um, or a very plain, a very plain maple. So we can surmise that the maple came from there. The spruce, there are a number of valleys in the Tyrol that are famous for instrument wood and they we know that going back hundreds of years so we can assume that the the best spruce came from those valleys uh that they they famously got from um that, that many makers got their wood from um we can also know with with um softwoods with spruce pine things like that we can do dendrochronology which is the study of the rings of of the, of the tree so yeah. um doing that we can find instruments that were made from the same tree we can actually identify oh, uh, yeah. amongst uh it, certainly in Stradivari's work um they're doing a lot of work catalog cat um cataloging the the fronts and which trees were used and putting them together and knowing when the trees were cut and that sort of thing. But the interesting thing that they found out is that there are other makers besides Stradivari who are using wood from the same tree. And they can be pretty definitive in saying that. So, so it's Stradivari probably bought logs of wood, but other people bought the same logs too, or other people had access to the, to the wood, um, which, is, which is interesting. Um, yeah. And now this, the different types of wood uh, also uh, provides a different type of sound then. Yes. So for instance, I talked about the maples, um, the, the, the European, the, the, the Carpathian maples uh, are often softer. They have very deep flames, which makes the wood weaker to bending. Um, it's very attractive, but it also weakens the wood. The native maple to... Italy is a very tough wood, very strong wood. Um, so you can actually, the, the fiddles have to be, the violins have to be made differently. The, the, the uh, arching has to be different. The graduations, which is the thickness of the, of the plate, has to be different based on the woods uh, that are used. Um, but they will also have inherently different tone uh, because of this difference in the density and their stiffness. Yeah. Same thing with the spruce, but you see a more consistent use of spruce than yeah. yeah, but now for you in America, do you use um, uh, um, indigenous wood there? We do. 
Um, so we have a few species of maple in America. We have um, red maple, which is a sort of uh, East Coast maple, we call it Appalachian maple or red maple. Um, those have red spruce, the East Coast sort of thing. There's a uh, big leaf maple, which grows in Oregon and Washington. That's a very soft wood. The, the red maple is a very, quite a, a strong hardwood. Um, we have rock maple or sugar maple, which is gross and sort of Northeast. That's a very, very hard wood. Um, spruce, we have Engelman spruce, we have uh, white spruce. Um, Engelman spruce is a, can be a little bit softer. Um, we have Sitka spruce, which is grows in the Northwest. Uh, that's a very hard spruce. Um, and do you use these, do you choose then the, the different wood that you prefer to use? Do you have a different sound then? Do you think every yes. violin maker has his own sound uh, when, when he makes the violin? Certainly makers have their preferences for, for materials. Um, I also use European spruce, so I, I buy in imported spruce as well as well as the maple. Um, there, there are two things going on. So a lot of the work I do is copying old instruments. So Stradivarius and Granary del Jesus. So you need a specific look to the maple and the spruce. Um, they can't just be good sounding. They have to look a certain way. And none of the American maples look like European maples. So it, it depends on what you're trying to do, what you select. Sometimes I will use American maple um, when I'm not concerned about how it looks. It can be very beautiful, but it doesn't look like wood that Stradivari used. So uh, I'm not trying to copy that. Um, but yes, makers will choose materials based on their um, tonal preferences, or, you know, what they think works the best. Um, and I'll use all of them. Uh, you'd have to modify your making based on the properties of the materials. So each of them has a little different way they want to work or, or the way they need to be shaped so that the violin is successful. Yeah, because yeah. I saw the violin you made for uh, the violinist um, Scott uh, Flavin. Yeah. Yeah. And it's beautiful. And he said that he actually wrote you on, on Messenger. He communicated <laughs> on social media. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had known each other previous to that. I had taken <laughs> care of his instruments for a few years. But yeah, he had, he, he was, uh, we, we live about, about a thousand miles away from each other. So uh, he knew my work. It was not a, it was a cold call exactly. Oh, okay. But, uh, um, he, he, uh, he told me what he wanted, and uh, we had a, a long discussion. I made, I made two, two violins for him. Um, I made a, a Guarneri del Jason model in 2011 um, for him. I actually have it, in, I have it here in the workshop. Oh, wow. So this, this was the first violin that I made for, for him. Um, and it's, it's a oh, wow. model and it's just in in the shop for for a little work Beautiful. so with that he was it's, it has a very nice one piece bag yes nice varnish that's um, beautiful yeah he uh, he he said he wanted something more powerful than the violin he had he was less we'll say less specific but he had very uh he said, I, I need something that's stronger. And so I made that violin, very happy with that violin. Um, <laughs> uh, and then a few years later, so this would be, I don't know, probably 2015 or so, that's when we had this. He says, oh, uh, I want another violin. I want a Stradivari model this time. So uh, for that one, uh, uh, I already had an idea, even more uh, 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 stronger idea of what, kind of violin he was looking for um, and uh, that one has a very old the, the, the materials I used on that for instance the back uh, came from Czechoslovakia but it was probably cut around 1920 so it was a very very old back um, the spruce was not as old but 
had some age on it. Um, so I had very specific materials that I was using for his uh, that I thought would work well aesthetically, but acoustically for what he wanted. Um, and it's very so, yeah. so when you when you make these, would you say these are replicas, or would you say they are just based on principles of this of these old instruments? Right. They can they can range from uh, being a copy, you know, really what we call a bench copy. So we call it, if you had them both on the bench, they would be twins. Um, so you can make like that. That's a very rigorous method of making. Um, so they look and ideally they sound the same. You know, if you've done your uh, homework properly and you, you understand the materials, you select the correct materials, um, both acoustically and, and visually. Um, so you can make that or you can make the other end of the spectrum just something, a fantasy of what you want to do. Uh, and there are gradations in between. Uh, most of the work that I do is uh, in the manner of. Okay. Uh, uh, you know, so, um, like here's an instrument. This is a, this is a Stradivari model. Um, so it's not a copy of a particular instrument, but it's on the same form as a Stradivari. I'm trying to make something that looks like a Stradivari. All the same techniques, all the same details. If you looked at the sound holes, if you looked at various details, it, it, I'm trying to imagine that I'm in the workshop of Stradivari and making a violin there. So uh, it's it, it, something that Stradivari would be happy to say, oh yeah, that's, I'm happy to put my name on that. So in the sense it's a copy of that, or we'll call it modeled on a Stradivari copy, copy of a Stradivari. Um, so yeah, there, there are different, different levels or different objectives. And it depends on the client. It depends on how I feel on a particular time. Sometimes I just want to make a violin. Sometimes I want to make something uh, more exact, like an yeah. old violin. And then how long does it take you from start to finish now to, to do a violin like that? Right. So if you're making a copy, it quite, can be quite a long time because there's a lot of... Um, you're looking at the original, you're, you know, you're, you're yeah. really trying to copy every single little nuance in it. And that is very challenging and very time demanding. Um, if you just make a violin, um, like if I make a violin like this, this, this very copy. Um, so to make it in the, in what we call in the white, just the woodwork, it's, you know, a, a, a few weeks to do the woodwork and probably a few weeks more to do the varnish work. Depends on how much antiquing, meaning how much of the varnish is going to be chipped away or um, you know, made to look like that, you know, more worn. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so you can spend quite you can spend as much time on the varnish work as you did on the making. And sometimes it's more challenging the varnish work. Um, it, it can be um, more elusive, so it, it often uh, can take longer because you, you're trying to sort of feel your way through what the varnish wants to do and how it wants to look. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So it takes a while, yeah. It takes a while. Yeah, and then a few and, days. and a lot of and a lot of patience. A Are you a very patient yeah. man? Uh, yes and no. Um, <laughs> I am fairly impetuous in a, in a certain regard. Um, uh, I, I, once I get a, uh, an idea in my head, I go forward on it. Um, and uh, it can take me quite a while before I get the idea. So yeah. uh, okay. my, my impetuosity is when I actually <laughs> so yeah. seized upon an idea. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it can be very quick or it can take a long time. Like, for instance, this violin. So the challenge in this violin will be I have to conceive of what I want this violin to look like when it's done. So I, I need to develop a picture. I need to somehow get inside that violin. Um, uh, how 
how the varnish wants to behave, how how the varnish is coming off, how the texture of it, the texture of the wood. This is where it gets quite complex. Whereas the making of the violin itself in the in the woodworking is fairly straight ahead. I respond to the to the wood. The materials tell me how high the arching should be, how thick the graduation should be. The, oh, I it, see. It's a more technical yeah. exercise. The mm -hmm. varnish is a more um, uh, I'm a little low to say artistic, but it is because there's a lot of technique involved in it, but it's more uh, you're trying to create a, a painting in a certain way, a, a visual uh, object. Uh, um, so you, you have to be responsive to the, to the materials. It's a bit like a performance, actually. It's a performance that takes weeks, but it's a performance just as a, if you're in a quartet, you would have to be sensitive to the other players to to oh, make I see. The yeah. work. A little bit like that, the varnish work is a little bit, you, you, you can't use, use a cookie cutter. You have mm -hmm. to be, um, you have to be sensitive to what the material is telling you and how it's, how it's behaving and how, so that at the end it's a, it's pleasing. Mm -hmm. That it's, uh, it has a integrity, it has yeah. a visual integrity uh, and this, interesting stimulating to the player and to the people who look at it pick it up and can both convincing that it looks like an old violin but also it looks like a nice old violin oh, not yeah. just yeah. any old violin it has to it has to have a have a uh, a story that is convincing uh and a story that you would want to know i, I look at the box as as a story and you want to um it's not a static thing that, that you look at. Just as you look at a painting, you, uh, I would say a poor painting is the one that you understand within moments. The interesting painting is the one where you're constantly drawn around the, the picture and, oh, look, look at that detail. And, or I wonder what's going on here. Or, you know, that you are engaged, you're brought into the, the picture the same way the painter was brought into the scene or the thing that they're trying to paint, they, they were drawn in. You want to be drawn into that in the same Amazing. experience. Well, the, the, these are artworks that you are making, you know, that I think definitely, um, but uh, do you have a, what is your signature on there? What do you have something that that's. Uh... <laughs> so they're very, so all my violins are branded so that I have an actual brand. Yeah. Yeah. Let me see that. Oh, this is a, um, it's a steel brand that has my name on it um, that was made in England so maybe 25 years ago. It actually says Boston on it because um, I, this maker doesn't make brands anymore. And I, it, they're so beautiful. Like the font that he made is really lovely. I've never gotten a new one, even though now I'm in Providence. I still have the same brand. So anyways, when the violin is finished, I heat that up. On the inside of the back, it is, I put a brand mark. Um, it's burnt into the wood on the inside, so you can't, yeah, you couldn't, you couldn't remove it. Um, well, you, here's a scrap of wood that I use to when yeah. I'm going to brand the, the instrument. Yeah. Oh, I sort of burn it in to make sure the temperature is right and it's not yeah. too hot or too cold. Um, yeah. So, anyways, that's what this but is that now that goes in the same in the in the inside of the violin or it's on the inside so the inside. Um, yeah so in the back right here but ah, on the inside yeah uh, so it's uh in a place that you can see if you're looking it's not hard to see but it's not yeah. right there it's it's a little oh, deeper yeah. inside the violin yeah um, and in a place that's very hard to remove like you would, oh, I see. Yeah. If you wanted to take it off, it would, it would I wouldn't say destroy, but you, you change things. It's, it, it, it would be, mm -hmm. it, I would consider it permanent. Um, yeah. And there were also, I also brand a number inside in another place. I, I put a number. Okay. So there's a number and, a, and a, so that you know um, how old the violin is that you made? Uh, yes. The numbers are, we'll say, Fairly chronological, so, uh, it, what I, 
assign numbers when I get pieces of wood and sort out my wood and put the wood together into sort of pairs of top and back and that I make up little sets and then I number that set uh, and put it in a notebook so that I have it ready. Um, and I sort of do that at the beginning of every year. I sort of plan out um, what I'm going to do for, for a year and I get the wood and I join it up and I make these sets. Um, so within sort of, we'll say a dozen numbers, they're fairly chronological, but sometimes number goes before it because I feel like working on a particular uh, set of wood first, but yeah, they're essentially chronological, but I have the numbering is just so that I have a record. Um, I have, I keep very, so I have lots of notebooks uh, of, of all the details of, of the construction and the materials. I have lots of notes that I keep and I, um, at this point, I have about 30,000 photographs too. I, I take pictures of my work as I'm working as a, as a method of note keeping um, because I'm not a patient person. <laughs> you asked me whether I was patient or not. I'm not always meticulous in, in, in certain things. So uh, photographs are an excellent way to keep records because they have a timestamp on them. They are the thing that you're trying to record. You know, it's a, it, it is the thing. Uh, I often have a little uh, chalkboard, old schooly schoolhouse chalkboard, and I write things on it. I put that in the picture, you know, in the frame with the object that I'm trying to uh, record and, and do that. So um, between my notebooks and my photographic records, uh, I have very good notes on the construction of each instrument so that I can refer to them. Um, if there's a problem, but if somebody says, well, that's an exceptional instrument, what did you do there? I can look back on the notes and I'd say, well, this is, this is what I did. Um, and the notes are quite technical about uh, materials, the, the properties, their density, their stiffness, the stiffness of the materials as I was constructing them, um, weights, lots of shapes of the arching, fairly elaborate. So in, in about 300 years yeah. time, so, uh, in about 300 years time, um, somebody will do an interview with somebody and they will say, well, we found yeah. Andrew Ryan's um, uh, <laughs> records. <laughs> I, I, that that would be a great joy to me. And I, have, I, hope we're, I hope we're still here in 300 years. <laughs> I hope humanity is still here and that we're playing yeah. music and enjoying uh, uh, the and your violence, yeah, it's amazing what you do. It's beautiful, really. And uh, how many violin makers are there in America? Is it a is it a very uh, a, a type of business? We're, we're very... a small bunch, you know. It's, yeah, right. as, a, as a as a as a group, as a as a business, it's there are not so many of us, but there's more than you. Would so I, I belong to an organization called the American Federation of Violin and Bowmakers, and we probably have. I'm guessing 250 members, 300 members, probably, um, with the sort of um, the, the professional trade organization. Uh, and there's another organization called the Violin Society of America, which is a more um, geared to uh, anybody you just can join up. So it's a lot of amateur makers. Um, and they must have uh, at least have double that in terms of people. So. Um, I would be surprised if there's a thousand people in America, you know, a thousand violin makers, but uh, yeah, that would, so they're probably between 500 and 1,000, just, just a guess. Well, this is so interesting. Um, and uh, I want to know now, so you, it, this must be sort of a, um, a full-time a job or is it also your hobby is it or do you have something else that you do aside from violin making right um yes it's a full-time job um <clears throat> i have uh, uh three children two of whom are off at college now um i have a dog he was here earlier i have a corgi um so he's, he's i guess he's my hobby so we take walks together um, 
He's an eight-year-old corgi. He's usually in the workshop. There's a little bed for him. He's usually sitting around here or sitting in the, there's a skylight. He likes to sit under the skylight in the one spot of, of sunshine. Um, uh, what else do I like to do? I like to play music, so I'm, I'm still playing the violin. I like, like playing music. Yeah. So, uh, not... I, I don't practice much, but I still enjoy playing. You enjoy so playing. Oh, I can. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. yeah. Well, I I've spoken to a, a watch designer, um, Alexander um, Shorokov, and he he actually says that he, uh, I mean, he designs these watches, but he says design is always in his head. You know, he's always thinking, and he's always his mind is always in that. This is this is why I'm asking. <laughs> I'm afraid I'm a little bit like that. <laughs> I'm a little bit like, like that, especially if you ask my wife. Um, really? Yes, yeah. uh, I'm always thinking about the instruments and letting problems run through my head. So uh, I spoke earlier about being uh, impetuous when I actually get a solution. I want to like act on it, um, but uh, yeah, there's always some problem. Some challenges running through my head till I find a solution. So yeah. you know, I'm always thinking about those things and what am I going to do with this or that? Yeah, what mm -hmm. design am I going to do? Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. so that is a, it is a little bit of an obsession to be. A, so the so the expression you're fiddling around is is quite um, applicable. <laughs> <to> you. <laughs> <laughs> probably a good expression around here yeah 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 <laughs> well this is so lovely to talk to you andrew i'm really fascinated by your work and uh, uh thank, well, thank you, you so much for your time and for for uh showing me all these instruments as well um uh and it's yeah. been my pleasure i'm i i'm Apologize if I uh, talked too much and didn't. You know, you get a word in this is, there. I love it. I love it because this <laughs> is so interesting, you know. And and how often can you talk to a violin maker? I mean, I've never had the opportunity <laughs> to speak to somebody like you know t talking about because also from a from a perspective where I'm not a musician and you you don't know these things. Then I hear, oh, you know, I had a violin specially made. Then I think wow yeah then then you want to know more and i think this is also uh for me very interesting to to know how important these things are and i i think also now the more i speak to artists that that you understand how important your role for the artists um you know is that you are the one making these instruments and that they can then play and um I think it's so important that you know that you also uh, talk about this because it's it's very it's great work that you're doing. I consider it a great privilege to be to be a violin maker, uh, both to um, be able to practice the craft because it mm -hmm. is a, a a time a period in, in history in which we have tremendous resources. Mm -hmm. uh, information knowledge understanding uh, materials all those things that are literally at our fingertips you know we can go on the, online and research things yeah. if we don't know about them um, so many uh, pictures of old instruments and all those all those resources that make us better violin makers um, and uh, the musical culture that there are so many fine musicians willing to support uh, makers, willing to, to uh, as Scott did, to, to commission instruments, um, both professional musicians and amateur musicians, people who are just devoted to, to the art, to, to, to culture, to uh, humanity, humanities, and to, to the culture of uh, our our shared culture music. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I consider it a great privilege to be able to, mm -hmm. to practice this craft and, and engage with artists. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing, yeah. Well, I wish you a wonderful weekend. Same to you. And, uh, and I hope we can speak again sometime if you make a 
uh, interesting instrument that you want to talk about, then you let me know. Sure, sure, okay. I would love to. I would so, love to anytime. Yeah, I would like pleasure. I would, it would be so, I'm so interested in what you are doing. Uh, thank you for inviting me into your, your interview. It's a pleasure, it's a, my pleasure. Andrew, have a lovely weekend. You too. Speak to you soon. Bye. Bye.